Section 13 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1, Section 13. G. Misuse and Attempted Misuse of Government Agencies by the White House, 1969 through 1972 one introduction in this section the committee will outline just a few of the attempts by white house personnel to use government agencies for their own political ends elsewhere in this report will be a fuller examination of the use of the incumbency to aid in the re-election of the president the results of these white house attempts to misuse agencies are not always clear in most cases the committee did not have either the time or the resources to investigate fully the results of these attempts to abuse governmental process however the committee presents these examples because they are illustrative of the attitudes and approaches to government which prevailed in the time leading up to the campaign of nineteen seventy two and which created the environment in which the events now known as watergate occurred two internal revenue service a preferred target of the White House staff in its attempts to politicize independent agencies was the Internal Revenue Service. The Political Enemies Project, White House efforts to have the IRS focus on left-wing organizations, White House attempts to get IRS information for political purposes, and the White House concern with tax exemptions given to liberal foundations, all attest to the serious efforts made by the White House to use an independent government agency for political purposes. A. Political Enemies Project At the same time that early organizational efforts began for the committee to re-elect the president, staff people in the White House were busy organizing the Political Enemies Project. Dean testified that on August 16, 1971, at the request of H. R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, he prepared a memorandum entitled dealing with our political enemies dean is quite succinct in summarizing the purpose of his memo this memorandum addresses the matter of how we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration stated a bit more bluntly how we can use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies Dean goes on to say that he has reviewed the question of how to screw our political enemies with a number of persons possessed of expertise in the field, and he concludes that the requirements for the project are to have an individual in the White House with full access and support of the top officials of various independent agencies and departments in order to effectively deal with individuals who are giving the White House a hard time. Dean recommends that Lynn Nofziger be the project coordinator, since he appears the most knowledgeable and most interested. Dean then goes on to recommend that the White House staff develop a small list of names that could be singled out as targets for action by various departments or agencies of the government. The potential of such an operation is clearly recognized by Dean, who advised, we can learn more about how to operate such an activity if we start small and build. In response to Dean's memorandum, Charles Colson forwarded to Dean a list of 20 enemies that had been prepared on June 24, 1971, by George Bell. 
in response to dean's suggestion that the white house focus on only 10 names to try out their techniques colson checked off 11 priority targets that he would give top priority lynn nofziger formerly a white house staff aide denied any involvement in the enemy's project with john dean or anyone else however jack caulfield's memorandum to john dean of august twelfth nineteen seventy one explicitly stated that caulfield had asked nofziger to come up with a candidate to assist in the enemy's project nofziger stated that he was aware that joanne gordon was working on an enemy's list in the white house while doing political research for charles coulson nofziger said he saw no need for a formal enemies list because anyone with political savvy would be able to name richard nixon's opponents with no trouble nofziger also felt that it was fully appropriate for the administration to ask government agencies to review carefully the projects of individuals who were unfriendly to the administration scores of lists were prepared in the white house from the spring through the late fall of nineteen seventy one of enemies and opponents of the administration most of these lists were prepared by charles colson's office particularly by joanne gordon and george bell they were sent to dean's office since dean had the action on the political enemies project dean testified that he did very little to carry out any attacks on the so-called enemies he testified that the compiling of a list was merely an exercise that i had no intention to implement Dean said he was unaware if any of the specified individuals on the list were subjected to any harm or injury, since he said the lists were principally used by Mr. Colson and Mr. Haldeman. In a September 4, 1971 memorandum to Larry Higby, Dean notes that he will await the review of the names on his attached list before taking any action. Charles Colson has stated publicly that these lists were compiled to ensure that no opponents of the administration would be included on the invitation lists of the White House. H. R. Haldeman testified that the enemy's list was compiled so that it could serve as an exclusion list for extending White House privileges. Haldeman explained that these lists were compiled since they were a part of carrying out the effort of the White House to carry out the policies of the administration rather than to provide a forum for the expression of opposition. However, a quick glance at the memorandum headed Opponent Priority Activity shows that the individuals targeted for action were destined to lose far more than their invitations to the White House. For example, under the name of Maxwell Dane is the comment, They should be hit hard starting with Dane. And under the name of Mort Halperin, a former Kissinger aide whose telephone had been tapped by the administration, the memo says that, a scandal would be most helpful here, in a reference to common cause where Halpern worked. In light of the comments appended to the individual names on the enemies list, it is dubious that Haldeman's characterization of mere exclusion from White House privileges was what he had in mind when it came to dealing with enemies. B. The Enemies List and the Internal Revenue Service at the same time that the political enemies project began in the summer of 1971 john dean testified he was asked to use the internal revenue service on an increasingly frequent basis to get political information for the white house or to initiate audits on opponents of the administration dean testified that he had little success in his efforts with commissioner johnny walters the objective of a briefing paper dean prepared for haldeman was 
to make IRS politically responsive. Dean catalogued the White House woes with IRS as follows. We have been unable to crack down on the multitude of tax-exempt foundations that feed left-wing political causes. We have been unable to obtain information in the possession of IRS regarding our political enemies. We have been unable to stimulate audits of persons who should be audited. We have been unsuccessful in placing RN supporters in the IRS bureaucracy. As part of the means for making the Internal Revenue Service politically responsive, Dean suggested that Walters should be told that discrete political action and investigations are a firm requirement and responsibility on his part. In the White House reconstructed version of John Dean's meeting with President Nixon on September 15, 1972, as relayed by Fred Buzzhart to Fred Thompson, the memorandum states that Dean reported on IRS investigation of Larry O'Brien. Dean testified that at the meeting that day with the President and Bob Haldeman, the President discussed the use of the Internal Revenue Service to attack our enemies. Dean also testified that the President wanted to place individuals in the independent agencies who would be responsive to the White House requirements. In the White House Judiciary Committee transcript of the September 15, 1972 meeting, Haldeman reported to President Nixon that John Dean was working on the list through IRS. On September 11, 1972, four days prior to his meeting with President Nixon, Dean met with IRS Commissioner Johnny Walters at Dean's office in the Executive Office Building. At this meeting, Dean turned over to Walters a list of 490 individuals, many of whom were McGovern campaign workers, and informed Walters that John Ehrlichman had asked IRS to determine what type of information could be developed concerning those individuals. At this time, according to Walters, Dean was hopeful that the Internal Revenue Service could acquire the information that was requested without creating any political problems. Walters subsequently discussed the matter with Secretary Schultz, who directed Walters to do nothing. Walters has testified that he did nothing after the meeting. After Dean's meeting with the President on September 15, 1972, Dean once again called Commissioner Walters on September 25th. On this occasion, Dean wanted to know what progress had been made in checking the list that had been provided, and Walters advised Dean against any checking, but agreed to reconsider the matter again with Secretary Schultz. The matter was never taken up again, and the list which was given to Commissioner Walters was sealed and locked in his safe in the Commissioner's office. Despite the reluctance of Commissioner Walters to involve the Internal Revenue Service in carrying out the political demands of the White House, tax information and income tax audits were still requested by the White House staff and supplied by other IRS personnel. Many of these requests came in the summer and fall of 1971, during the same period of time that the Political Enemies Project was being started, the Sandwedge proposal being considered, and the 1972 campaign being organized. C. Tax Information and Audits Requested of the Internal Revenue Service In the study of the Enemies List by the Joint Committee on the Internal Revenue Taxation, the staff report concluded that, 
in none of these cases has the staff found any evidence that the taxpayer was unfairly treated by the internal revenue service because of political views or activities however the investigation of the senate select committee has disclosed a number of instances where information from the internal revenue service was inappropriately provided to the white house dean testified that jack caulfield had a contact inside the internal revenue service and that it was through this contact that they were able to obtain confidential information and learn how to initiate audits whenever they wanted to do so caulfield has testified that his main contact inside the internal revenue service was vernon mike Acri, formerly assistant commissioner for inspection however Acri stated that he sent caulfield no copies of any tax returns never discussed initiating any specific audits other than in a general sense and that the only information that was provided to jack caulfield was on type x checks an inquiry to see whether or not an individual who was being considered for appointment by the executive branch had tax problems these conflicting stories will be discussed in more detail in the context of specific cases further on in this report one of the means by which the white house kept abreast of irs activity was through the sensitive case reports prepared by the irs according to long-established procedures one sensitive case reports the irs maintained a list of individuals who would be considered sensitive cases senators congresspeople entertainers associates of the president and certain citizens in high income tax brackets sensitive case reports are filed from the field office each month on investigations concerning these individuals and are then routed to the appropriate irs division the heads of each division select the more significant sensitive case reports to send on to the assistant commissioner of compliance his staff subsequently reviews these files and prepares a cull section which are those cases which are worthy of note by the commissioner of the irs usually between twenty and twenty-five such cases subsequently the commissioner of the irs and or one of his assistants met with the secretary of the treasury to determine whether any of the sensitive case reports were significant enough to bring to the attention of the president for example Cases involving the president's personal friends, or large contributors, were usually important to bring to the president's attention in order to avoid any embarrassment for the president and the executive branch. When Roger Barth was assistant to the commissioner of the IRS, he would call John Ehrlichman directly, and sometimes John Dean, and the secretary of the treasury would contact the president directly to bring these sensitive cases to the White House's attention barth stated that an average of one sensitive case report per month was forwarded on former irs commissioner johnny walters testified that he was unaware of barth showing or sending sensitive case reports to john ehrlichman and that it would have been out of the routine at irs this sensitive case reporting procedure was important in the case of mr charles g rebozo and the IRS investigation into Mr. Rebozo commencing in 1972 and 1973. This matter will be discussed more fully in another chapter of this report. However, there were other channels by which the White House requested information or tax audits from IRS. 2. Requests for Audits Newsday Reporters In the fall of 1971, 
Newsday completed a long investigation into the affairs of Charles Bibi Rebozo that was to be published in early October 1971. The prospective publication of an unfavorable article about the president's best friend caused ripples of apprehension throughout the White House. For example, on September 10, 1971, Caulfield wrote to John Dean a very detailed memo concerning his inquiry into the background and circumstances of the Newsday article. Caulfield noted that a discreet look at the newspaper's publication calendar has been accomplished. In the same memorandum, Caulfield notes that Robert Greene, leader of the investigative group, has been in both Washington and Florida within the past two weeks. This information was provided to Caulfield by an FBI agent and is discussed in more detail in another section. Dean testified that after the article about Rebozo was published, he received instructions from either Haldeman or Ehrlichman that Robert W. Greene, head of the investigative team for the article, should be audited by the IRS. Caulfield testified that Dean asked him to see how an audit might be done on Mr. Greene, how it might be done in a way that might not be illegal. In response to Dean's request, Caulfield called Mike Ackrey at the Internal Revenue Service to determine how audits were initiated on individuals. Ackrey explained to Caulfield that they were often started from anonymous informants' letters, which were received by the IRS. Ackrey recalled that the conversation only involved a general discussion of the audit process without specific names being mentioned. The results of Caulfield's discussion with Ackrey are contained in a memorandum from Caulfield to Dean. The memo states that a knowledgeable source at IRS was contacted by Caulfield and that the source suggested that a priority target be established within the group with preference given to one residing in the New York area. Dean then asked him to initiate the audit on Robert Green. Caulfield said he spoke to Acri to ask him to send an anonymous letter to the Internal Revenue Service about Green. Caulfield believes that the letter was, in fact, sent on Acri's direction. Acri denied that he knew of any request for a specific audit on Robert Green and also denied that any anonymous letters were sent at his direction. However, in light of Caulfield's suggestion to Dean that a priority target be established within the group with reference given to one residing in the New York area, and in light of the fact that Robert Green resides in New York State and had his return audited by New York State under the Federal State Exchange Program, the question arises as to whether the audit in fact resulted from Caulfield's efforts. On another occasion, Dean asked Caulfield to initiate audits on three or four individuals. Caulfield says he brought Acri over to the White House to discuss the matter with Dean and Caulfield. Caulfield stated that Acri was quite reluctant to get involved in these audits and that he remained evasive when specifically asked to do these projects. Caulfield testified that the matter apparently died shortly thereafter because of Acri's lack of interest. Harold Gibbons On June 12, 1972, Charles Colson wrote a memorandum to John Dean requesting that Dean initiate an income tax audit on Harold G. Gibbons, a vice president of the Teamsters Union in St. Louis. Colson's motivation for wishing to start the audit is rather clear. Gibbons, you should know, is an all-out enemy in McGovernite, ardently anti-Nixon. He is one of three labor leaders who were recently invited to Hanoi. 
dean testified that he ignored this request from colson and that nothing was ever done to initiate such an audit emile d'antonio daniel talbot and new yorker films caulfield felt sufficiently confident of the white house's ability to initiate income tax audits that on at least one occasion he recommended to john dean that a discreet irs audit be done following the release of the film millhouse a number of individuals within the white house became quite concerned about the political impact of this film showing reruns of old nixon speeches as a result in the summer and early fall of nineteen seventy one caulfield directed anthony t ulicevich to view the film and to make discreet inquiries of new yorker films incorporated daniel talbot the film distributor and emile d'antonio the producer of the film finally on october fifteenth nineteen seventy one caulfield felt that the success of the film posed such a serious threat to the white house that he suggested to john dean that they initiate discreet irs audits of new yorker films incorporated d'antonio and talbot caulfield stated that if his recommendation to john dean was agreeable he was going to approach mike acri about initiating the audits dean however did not agree with caulfield's recommendations and caulfield said no further action was taken at that time dean forwarded caulfield's suggestion to his assistant fred f fielding and fielding reacted quite negatively to the idea of initiating a discreet irs audit or leaking derogatory information about the film producers nothing in fielding's memorandum indicated that his reaction was because such tactics would be ethically improper but rather because doing irs audits just doesn't seem to be a solution that will help us larry o'brien there is evidence before the select committee that an audit of larry o'brien was encouraged by white house officials in the summer of nineteen seventy two and that o'brien's tax returns were specially inspected by irs personnel at the direction of john ehrlichman however this activity is more fully described in a later section of this report other requests john dean testified that he was asked by several people in the white house and particularly rosemary woods if he could do something about an irs audit on dr kenneth ryland president nixon's osteopath dean testified that he requested that the relevant officials at justice and irs keep him informed on the matter after he learned of the serious allegations but that nothing further was done dean also testified that he was asked to do something about the audits of reverend billy graham and actor john wayne i was told that i was to do something about these audits that were being performed on two friends of the president they felt they were being harassed and the like finally when i got around to checking on it mr caulfield sent me some information which i think is evidenced in the exhibit and a note went to mr higby mr higby sent it in to mr haldeman and mr haldeman wrote a note on the bottom this has already been taken care of so obviously things were happening that i had no idea on roger barth testified that he knew of no request from reverend graham for help from the irs but that barth had brought to the attention of the secretary of the treasury and possibly jack caulfield a discrepancy in the sensitive case reports concerning how an audit on graham was initiated documentary evidence received by the select committee shows that jack caulfield received type reports from the irs indicating that neither john wayne nor reverend graham was being harassed 
in addition barth testified that he was not aware of any action taken to impede the audit on reverend graham and there is presently no evidence before the committee showing any action taken to impede any investigation of mr wayne three requests for taxpayer information from the irs individuals working in the white house requested taxpayer information as well as actual returns from the irs early in the administration clark mullenhoff then a staff assistant at the white house asked irs if he could examine nine individual tax returns roger barth testified that mullenhoff was given access to these returns only after commissioner randolph thrower received written requests on behalf of the president after mullenhoff left the white house barth noted that only individuals who worked directly for the president such as ehrlichman haldeman and dean would have access to tax returns and audit information barth added that other individuals on their staffs including jack caulfield also had access to the tax information among the requests made by caulfield for specific taxpayer information from the irs were the following one in the fall of 1971 larry goldberg was being considered to head up the jewish citizens for the re-election of the president caulfield did a background investigation of goldberg to determine his loyalty to the re-election campaign and his involvement in jewish organizations among the information obtained by caulfield in the course of his investigation were actual copies of pages from goldberg's tax returns from 1968 1969 and 1970. caulfield testified that he obtained this information from mike acri but acri had no recollection of providing any specific information on goldberg roger barth testified that he had no specific recollection of sending that information to caulfield but that he may have sent that over two in late september nineteen seventy one an individual wished to donate a wine storage vault to the western white house john dean asked caulfield to check out the individual on october fifteenth nineteen seventy one caulfield wrote a memo to dean which reflected that caulfield had obtained access to the individual's income tax returns because of the information contained therein dean noted that kalmbach would call the individual and tell him we are not interested on october nineteenth nineteen seventy one caulfield testified that the tax information was given to him by mike acri and that acri had obtained the information from a pretext interview conducted by an irs agent Acri recalled being asked about the individual by Caulfield, but has no recollection of conducting, authorizing, or knowing of any pretext interviews of the individual. 3. Caulfield requested and received specific taxpayer information on five individuals who were seeking to involve the White House in a scheme that claimed the recovery of the fabled Lost Dutchman gold mine in the Southwest. Caulfield, at the request of Peter Flanagan, investigated these five individuals, and he was given access to their Internal Revenue Service tax returns. Caulfield testified that he obtained this tax information from Mike Acri, but Acri denied that he furnished Caulfield any inappropriate information, and did not recall any requests such as that described by Caulfield. 4. In December 1971, Caulfield was asked to do an investigation of Stuart L. Udall, former secretary of the interior and the overview corporation of which mr udall was chairman of the board 
in a memorandum of october eighth nineteen seventy one caulfield informed dean that he asked for an irs check to support this material caulfield testified that he meant by that comment that he would sit down and speak with mike acri about any tax problem that overview corporation or stuart udall may have had dean asked caulfield to find out if overview had any federal contracts and so caulfield checked with five separate federal agencies including irs only to discover no record of any federal contracts for any of them the testimony of Caulfield suggests that the motivation behind discovering whether or not there were any federal contracts given to Overview Corporation was a desire of the White House to cancel these contracts if any existed. In his Sandwedge proposal, Caulfield described Mike Acri as a strong Nixon loyalist who has proved it to me personally on a number of occasions. Acri's potential assignment in the Sandwedge operation was to provide IRS information input, financial investigations, and other federal law enforcement liaison information. Therefore, according to Caulfield, many of these requests for IRS information in the fall of 1971 were, in part, an effort by Caulfield to demonstrate the potential effectiveness of his organization. While some requests for IRS information were apparently legitimate, the ready access to such highly confidential information should be more effectively curbed in the future. 4. Special Service Staff On June 18, 1969, the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the Senate Committee on Government Operations heard testimony from its staff and from a former member of the Black Panther Party to the effect that the Black Panthers had never filed income tax returns and had never been audited by the Internal Revenue Service. In response to some of the testimony, Senator Carl Munt commented that it seemed that the Black Panthers get pretty special treatment. There was also testimony in these hearings from Leon Green, IRS Deputy Assistant Commissioner of Compliance, who testified about the tax-exempt status of certain politically active groups and raised the question of whether or not they should be tax-exempt. Following these hearings in the summer of 1969, on about July 1, 1969, Tom Charles Houston, assistant to the president, telephoned Roger Barth and requested that the Internal Revenue Service begin reviewing the activities of certain activists' organizations. IRS also received a list of organizations from the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations that the committee felt the IRS should investigate. Houston noted in a later memo to H.R. Haldeman that the president had indicated a desire for IRS to move against leftist organizations taking advantage of tax shelters in early 1969. As a result of these various pressures, the IRS established the Activist Organizations Committee on July 18, 1969, whose principal function was to assemble data and monitor the activities of certain organizations with reference to their compliance with IRS laws. The committee was established on a very secretive basis. In a memorandum of July 24, 1969, that discussed the first meeting of the committee, it was noted, We do not want the news media to be alerted to what we are attempting to do or how we are operating, because the disclosure of such information might embarrass the administration or adversely affect the service operations in this area or those of other federal agencies or congressional committees. 
the memorandum also noted that initially a type of organization in which we are interested may be ideological militant subversive radical or other and one of our first problems will be to define and to determine what kind of organization we are interested in in 1970 the irs altered the name of the group to the special service group and subsequently the name of the organization was again changed to the special services staff on august 14 1970 tom charles houston requested a progress report on the project from the commissioner of the internal revenue service which he received more than a month later in that report commissioner thrower explained the history and purpose of the group as follows the function of the special service group is to obtain consolidate and disseminate any information on individuals or organizations including major financial sponsors of the individuals or organizations that would have tax implications under internal revenue laws the sole objective of the special services group is to provide a greater degree of assurance of maximum compliance with the internal revenue laws by those involved in extremist activities and those providing financial support to these activities however it appears from mr houston's memorandums that he was not anxious to limit the activities of special service staff merely to tax matters on september twenty first nineteen seventy houston wrote to haldeman that what we cannot do in a courtroom by criminal prosecutions to curtail the activities of some of these groups irs could do by administrative action moreover valuable intelligence type information could be turned up by irs as a result of their field audits houston also noted that while he had been pressing the irs to move against leftist organizations taking advantage of tax shelters his efforts had been to no avail by september nineteen seventy the special service group had information on approximately one thousand twenty five organizations and forty three hundred individuals the existence of the special service staff was known to certain congressional investigating committees but its existence was not announced to the general public until april nineteen seventy two in august nineteen seventy three the special service staff was abolished by the internal revenue service and it was announced that financial information about tax resistors and protesters could be adequately obtained by the regular divisions of the irs however the compiling of vast files and information coupled with white house intentions demonstrate the potential abuses and show the need for restraints on the use of such information five tax-exempt foundations as is obvious from the memorandums of tom charles houston and patrick buchanan one of the major concerns of the nixon white house from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy two was that liberal and left-wing foundations were using tax exemptions from the irs to sustain their political activities the difficulties experienced by the administration were examined in a march third nineteen seventy buchanan memorandum to the president which discussed how to combat the institutionalized power of the left concentrated in the foundations that succor the democratic party buchanan's basic theme was that a number of the large foundations had been using their tax-exempt status to build huge reservoirs of capital to fund political or quasi-political undertakings that were almost uniquely liberal in their direction 
thereby causing a serious imbalance in the political process. These foundations, notably the Brookings Institution and the Ford Foundation, were, according to Buchanan, controlled by individuals with definite liberal philosophies, philosophies which are reflected in the public policies, public attitudes, and public undertakings sponsored by the foundation. To remedy the problem, Buchanan proposed a number of recommendations, including the utilization of the Internal Revenue Service to place checks on those foundations that were hostile to the Nixon administration, the removal of what Buchanan perceived as a pre-existing Democratic bias at the Internal Revenue Service, the selective distribution of government funds to those foundations friendly to the Nixon administration goals, and, most importantly, the creation of a new foundation to serve as a haven for conservative intellectuals. Buchanan also suggested that there be a strong fellow running the Internal Revenue Division, and an especially friendly fellow with a friendly staff in the tax-exempt office. I'm not sure we have this right now. Another of Buchanan's suggestions for curtailing the influence of certain liberal foundations was to disperse selectively federal grants by the administration. The administration should begin to initiate a policy of favoritism in all future federal grants to those institutions friendly to us that want work, and we should direct future funds away from the hostile foundations like Brookings. Buchanan suggested that the president direct a study of the top 25 foundations in this country, which, among other things, would reveal which are friendly, which are potentially friendly, and which can be co-opted to support projects that the president supports, and which are hostile to us, which are the arms of political adversaries. Buchanan also recommended that the president direct the Bureau of the Budget to come up with a listing of all federal monies from each department that go to foundations for studies and research. Thus, with the creation of an administration-oriented conservative foundation, Buchanan envisioned all federal contracts now going to institutions which are essentially anti-administration would be shifted to this new baby and to other pro-administration foundations. Anti-administration foundations should be cut off without a dime. One good talk to the cabinet would be all that would be required to get cooperation here. And budget could be on notice to notify the West Wing of the White House if Brookings gets any more money. Other individuals in the White House also gave thought to the problem of liberal foundations. John Dean asked Jack Caulfield in the summer of 1971 to consider how the administration could most effectively deal with the Ford Foundation and the Brookings Institution in 1972. Caulfield's solution to the problem was, similar to Buchanan, to apply pressures to have the Internal Revenue Service strictly enforce existing statutes and promulgated regulations designed to threaten the tax-exempt status enjoyed by these organizations. Caulfield also observed that, Commissioner Walters has not yet exercised the firm leadership they expected at the time of his appointment. Additionally, there appears to be a reluctance on his part to make discreet, politically-oriented decisions and to affect major appointments based upon administration loyalty considerations. Much of the input for Caulfield's observations came from Roger Barth, according to Caulfield. On July 20, 1971, 
shortly after the publication of the pentagon papers by the new york times john dean wrote a memo to bud crow which stated in part in your work on the pentagon papers and related issues you will become aware of the fact that there is a publication out of the brookings institution indicating that they are planning for the fall of this year a study of vietnam based on documents of a current nature chuck colson has made some efforts to determine what brookings is up to but i don't think he has produced any solid evidence of the nature of this publication i requested that caulfield obtain the tax returns of the brookings institution to determine if there is anything that we might do by way of turning off money or dealing with principals of the Brookings institution to determine what they are doing and deal with anything that might be adverse to the administration caulfield did other checking into tax-exempt institutions at about this time for john dean on july sixth nineteen seventy one he reported on potomac associates an organization that the white house feared would develop into another brookings institution caulfield noted that the building where potomac associates had offices appeared to have good security with a guard present in the lobby at all times however caulfield noted that a penetration is deemed possible if required caulfield was also asked to investigate the fund for investigative journalism caulfield wrote a memo to john dean on february seventeenth nineteen seventy two that a discreet inquiry determined that the fund for investigative journalism had a tax-exempt status granted by the irs in april nineteen seventy in addition caulfield said that the fund was the principal source for financing stories of the mylai massacre and that it was primarily financed with extreme left-wing money caulfield noted that a request for more detailed information will be in hand on a discreet basis during the early part of the next week this reference concerned the investigation conducted by tony ulisevich at caulfield's discretion the request for a tax exemption by the center for corporate responsibility a non-profit organization designed to promote corporate social responsibility through educational and research activities was denied by the internal revenue service on may sixteenth nineteen seventy three despite unanimous approval by the interpretive division of the chief counsel's office at irs the opinion denying the tax exemption was written by an attorney with no prior involvement in the case at the direction of roger barth then deputy chief counsel notes of the assistant director of the interpretive division found in the irs file on the case said perhaps white house pressure finally on december eleventh nineteen seventy three judge charles ritchie ordered that the center be recognized as a tax-exempt organization by the internal revenue service end of section thirteen